listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good evening to those people in Topoi's time zone over in Europe, and uh, good morning to those in my time zone on the uh, West Coast of the United States, and I'm actually in Mexico today. It's a real pleasure to have my old friend Topoi Loani with me today. Let me do a quick intro of Topoi and then dive into our discussion. Uh, Topoi Loani is a co-founder and managing partner of Helios Investment Partners and co-CEO and a director of Helios Fairfax Partners. Prior to forming Helios, he was a principal at TPG Capital, a leading global investment firm managing private equity, venture capital, credit, and real estate investment funds. At TPG, Mr. Lawani had a lead role in the execution of several significant leveraged buyouts and venture capital investments, including the acquisitions of Burger King, Debenhams, J. Crew, and Scottish and Newcastle Retail. He began his career as a mergers and acquisitions and corporate development analyst at the Walt Disney Company. Topoi serves on the boards of directors of Helios Tower, Vivo Energy, Accela, Zola Electric, OVH Energy, and Mall for Africa. He also serves on the board of directors of the Emerging Markets Private Equity Association and the End Fund, a leader in global health movements to tackle neglected tropical diseases. Mr. Luani is a member of the MIT Corporation the MIT School of Engineering Dean's Advisory Council, and the Harvard Law School Dean's Advisory Board, and has previously served on the Overseer's Visiting Committee of the Harvard Business School. Mr. Luani received a BS in Chemical Engineering from MIT, a Juris Doctorate Cum Laude from Harvard Law School, and an MBA from Harvard Business School. He is fluent in Yoruba, a widely spoken West African language. So, Topoi, uh, let's back up for a second here, my friend. Uh, let's go back to Ibadan, the town where you grew up in Nigeria. Um, where is Ibadan? I guess it's Ibadan. I think I got that Ibadan, right. That's good. Ibadan. Yeah, that's good. And um, what was your childhood like growing up there? Well, so first, thanks for inviting me, Willie. It's uh, great to see you, uh, not on a bike. And, and thanks especially to, the, uh, to your guests for joining so it's really good to, to be here. So, yeah, look, I mean, I, I had, a, I have to say, I had a, a fantastic childhood. I mean, I grew up in Ibadan, which, uh, you know, and I went to a, a, a local kind of Nigerian primary school, 100% Nigerians, pretty much. Um, but, you know, but my dad worked for an international research institute. And so where I lived essentially on a, on a campus, if you will. And on that campus were probably close to 100 nationalities. So in the five houses surrounding my my home my neighbors were you know next door time from taiwan israel korea jamaica sierra leone so I've, i grew up you know in an extremely multicultural environment in an extremely multicultural environment and and you know so just always was from really the get-go very always comfortable with with you know people from basically anywhere and then actually i went to a boarding school also in nigeria in the middle of of uh, of the country so suffice it to say it was not plush um you know but it was what was interesting about the school was it was um academically extremely strong but it was government funded government subsidized so heavily heavily subsidized so it cost almost nothing to go to go there 
And so as a result, you had in that school, basically all strata of, of society. I mean, I went to school with the kids of the president, the vice president, all the heads of the you know armed forces, but equally, you know, a decent percentage of the kids of my school, a very decent percentage, were probably, you know, the first kids in their entire family histories ever to go to school. They turn up to school with, you know, all their belongings in a, you know, in a sack of, basically a sack of rice, if you, if you know what those things look like. So, so I think, again, just this kind of childhood that I think was a little bit unusual and probably very difficult to, to replicate in this, just the way the world is these days, or was it, you know, extremely multicultural, extremely sort of socioeconomically kind of fluid. Um, and I think that kind of just made me, you know, I've, I've always been fairly comfortable, to be honest, you know, around people of, of any stripe, frankly. And I think that was, you know, a result of that. Was the plan always to go to the States or to Europe for college? Or was there a path that would have kept you in Nigeria sort of for your entire career? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it was not uncommon. I mean, statistically uncommon, but not uncommon if your parents were fortunate enough to be able to afford it for you. To, you could get an excellent then, an excellent primary school, secondary school education in Nigeria. And depending on what you were studying, maybe university as well. But clearly, as time went by, you know, it became harder and harder to get, you know, sort of a world-class sort of education. So it wasn't unusual if your parents were able to afford it um, to send you off to school, you know, to university as, you know, uh, in, in America or in uh, in the UK. So for me, you know, my family had always had more of a leaning towards the US versus the UK. I mean, families sort of break break that way. My dad went to, got his master's in Columbia, for example, et cetera. So, so I think going to university in the States was, was kind of, was always a, uh, on the cards. There was a moment when I thought I'd go to university, come here in, to, to the UK for university. I have that's a, a story for another day, but it was uh, actually a pretty interesting insight into the nature of of this society and, and the American one. But anyway, um, we'll save that for another day. But yeah, so I ended up going to going to university in the US. And so you get to MIT. You're studying to be a chemical engineer. Um, how's that transition from going from a boarding school in Nigeria to Boston, Massachusetts, Cambridge, and uh, being a freshman at MIT? Yeah, look, I mean, th- again, I think because of the way I grew up, to be honest, I, I didn't, I don't really remember feeling too much of a of a culture shock. I mean, the workload was a bit of a culture shock, but you know, you know, but day to day life, I think, was just not. You know, yeah, the lots of things are different, but you sort of adapt to them, right? So lots of things were different. You adapt it, just you know, just different sort of uh, different flavors. But I, you know, and 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 MIT actually happens to be you know a fairly international place, um, and also happens to have you know I think amongst those sorts of you know large kind of research uh, institutions amongst the highest sort of rates of of kids who are first in their family to go to college it's an unusually high percent so it's a pretty diverse place as well uh, and so i think that was you know other than yeah the workload which was extraordinary i think it was the it was actually it was okay it was and did okay. your three did all of your brothers also go to college in the state so I'm, I'm number two of four. Uh, so number one went to UC San Diego. Number two went uh, number two went to uh, University of um, as a Virginia Tech, and then went to grad school at Stanford. And then number three, or rather, number and then number sorry, number three went to, to Edinburgh in, here in, in Scotland. And then number four was the one who went to to Virginia Tech and then and then to Stanford. So we all sort of scattered all over. But then, of course, all of them with the exception of, of me, everyone then returned to Nigeria, um, you know, after college and jobs, et cetera, everyone sort of basically reconverged in Nigeria where, I, you know, where, whereas I sort of stayed in, in the U S and so we've always been in and out, but Nigeria has always been a pretty strong uh, gathering point. They've sort of since scattered again, but, but that's, 
Nigeria has always been a, a very strong force of gravity for us. And why the desire to get a JD MBA? Because you couldn't make up your mind on which degree was more important or useful or because you really wanted to be the most overeducated person in the room? I was young and I had energy, man. <laughs> that was then. I wouldn't do it now, that's for sure. No, but so, so what, so look, the background to that actually was, so I started university in, in September of 1987. In October of 1987, those are big sort of market crashes, I think everyone knows. And before that, I'd had no interest, knowledge, exposure, nothing about sort of financial markets or, or anything like that. But then, you know, after that market crash, then followed the, you know, the sort of the insider trading scandals of Ivan Bosky and Dennis Levine and, you know, Drexel collapse and you had Wall Street, the movie and, and so on and so forth. And it was the first time, at least, I think, you know, where markets really financial markets sort of made it into kind of the general interest media. Right. And so, yeah, I just sort of read a lot about this stuff and, you know, kind of got interested in sort of understanding it a little bit better and sort of who did what to whom in the industry and so on and so forth. And it was then that I decided, you know, probably because I read Barbarians at the Gate or something, I don't know what it was, but anyway, you know, look, it's superficial things, but they all, they all add up. Right. But so I, I decided then that the private equity or something as it was then forming was a thing that I really wanted to do. And, and I've, you know, and law school was, I found it was interesting. My mom's actually a lawyer, but she went to law school quite late. So I was sort of aware of her going through it while she was going through it. So law school was interesting to me. And, and actually at the time, you know, lawyers were pretty, pretty prominent deal makers, right? You had people like, you know, um, Joe Flom at Skadden and Marty Lipton at Wachtell. And so they were in all of those sorts of uh, stories. So I look, so I, I said, look, I'll, you know, apply to, to law school because frankly, I, I, you know, was, quite young when I was doing this. I didn't, I, I didn't think I'd get into business school, but I felt business school was what I needed for the, for the vocation as it were. Uh, but probably I'd go to law school because you know, I was probably too young and too inexperienced to be accepted at business school. I wasn't surprised that I was accepted to, I was grateful, but not surprised that I got into law school. I was quite surprised to have been accepted into to business school. Um, and then, you know, and I just felt, okay, well, look, the, the, the two are one at the time. And you know, in retrospect, I think what I learned about that is a bit different. But at the time, I felt like a, you know, law school would be just because I found it interesting and for some intellectual stimulation, business school would be to give me the tools of the trade. And I think as it transpired, I have to say that I think law school, for me at least, has been every bit as helpful um, in what I do, you know, as business school has been. I mean, you know, things like corporations and tax and bankruptcy and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you do you have any do you have any relationships with your uh, law school classmates? Because I certainly know you've maintained great relationships with your business school classmates. Are the, it's are the a really, people still part of your life or are they all off doing their yeah, thing? Yeah, no, it's a really, really, re, well, that too. It's a really interesting question, actually, Willie, because as you as you know, um, I have very, very close relationships with uh, with friends from business school. And then I would say many more. Uh, than I do friends from law school, but I do have some very close relationships with a very small, um, not very small, but a handful of, of, of friends from law school. But, but oddly, I, I'm much more, I'm much closer and more engaged with the law school as an institution than I am, you know, with the business school. I'm, I'm really quite involved with the law school. I feel, you know, I really do feel like it was quite transformational for me. I feel like, you know, a legal education, especially, especially in the US um, and especially at an institution like, Harvard Law School, I think is hugely empowering. Uh, and I do feel in, in a lot of respects, 
that it was as an institution, it sort of spoke to me a little bit more than business school did. Whereas business school as a community of friends and colleagues, et cetera, you know, have much more affinity for, if that makes sense. So you got out of HBS and you went to work for TPG and you were there at TPG. You know, today we think about TPG and it's, name is synonymous with the very biggest and most established private equity firms. But back in the 1990s, when you joined TPG, it was not KKR or Blackstone or Apollo at that time. It was an emerging firm that had done well, but had none of the sort of the brand recognition that we have with TPG today. Talk a little bit, Topoy, about when you joined TPG, did you did you think that you might stay there for your entire career or was there always something in the back of your mind of I'm here to learn a lot and then I might take that on to go back to either Africa or go to Europe or do my own thing? Or when you got to TPG, it was like, this is a great job and I might end up being a partner at TPG and spending my entire career here. Super question, Willie. So, so when I, you're right, when I joined TPG, I think I was the 11th person there. It was a very small place, but I would say that it was to my mind, at least, um, you know, I think one thing, I'm, I, I think to my mind, it, it seemed to be a, a relatively short bet because, you know, Bonderman, Coulter and Price, in my humble opinion, I think are from a pure invest, investment capability standpoint, I think they're as good as, as, as they're out, out there. They had an incredible track record, at least, you know, David and, 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 um, and Jim did from, uh, you know, from Robert Bass Group. And so it was a bit like, you know, it was a bit like a, a you know, a, a big brand in a small company. Right. And, and so from that standpoint, it was, you know, it was just the best of all. I have to say I had the most extraordinary time there. I mean, they let me do things that no 25, 26 year old had any, any business doing. So that was a phenomenal experience. And I, and I have to say that when I sort of settled into it, I loved my job. And for you know, a period of a, of a number of, of, of years, I felt, you know, yeah, this works just fine. I love living in San Francisco. I love the people I work with. It's great work and, you know, and I'm well compensated for it. So what's not to love? But then interestingly, you know, the, so the, my, in my application for the JD MBA program, which I wrote when I was 20 years old, my essay subject actually, or my, whatever that you want to call it was actually about wanting to, you know, to do, to, to be essentially a private equity investor in Africa. Weirdly. And I actually stumbled across the I stumbled across it when we were moving house a couple of years ago. And I'd actually forgotten that, but it, but clearly it's something that, you know, from the moment I got interested in markets and in investing, I sort of always overlaid it against doing the same in, you know, the part of the world that I, you know, kind of know best, you know, feel most comfortable in. So I think that, you know, there did come a time at TPG where, you know, you start to sort of, where I started to feel a little bit, I would say, sort of dislocated, if that's the right word, right? Just feeling like, you know, this is great, but but then what? I'm going to be sort of 75 years old and living in San Francisco and retired. Look, nothing wrong with that, but it's just not, It, it was. It, I just didn't understand, you know, starting to feel a bit distant, if you will, from my, from my roots. And I think it, that was the time when I realized, okay, look, I do need to, I do need to kind of, you know, reorient here. And so, and look again, I mean, you know, you know, Bonneman and Coulter and, and they've been phenomenal, right? And they, you know, I decided that I wanted to move to the London office of TPG because I wanted to be closer to, to Africa. And I was fairly transparent about that. And they, you know, and that was, uh, I wouldn't say it was okay with them, but suffice it to say they made it their idea and then, you know, and then, uh, and then kicked me out. So I, I moved to the London office. And was there anything at that time watching Bonnerman, Coulter, and Price building TPG, Topoi, that you saw and thought was distinct from the other PE firms and that you took that to the establishment of Helios? 
So something that sort of said either the the tone, the way they invest, the way they run the firm, the way they bring in operational expertise. Well, what was there some piece to the TPG magic beyond just great people that you said if I end up doing my own thing and then ended up doing Helios that you would sort of take from that TPG experience and implement on your own on your own firm? For sure. Uh, and, you know, look, for sure. And there's a but at the end of it, right? And I think that, you know, I think what it was, so what they did really well was just, you know, hire, you know, pretty creative people who were, you know, fairly entrepreneurial, you know, had a lot of hustle and just empowered them to go and find things that seemed interesting because they themselves are, you know, pretty interesting people. You know them pretty well, right? So, so they did that. And I think that made it, it sort of, and in the way that we evaluated investments and discussed investments, it was as pure sort of a contest of ideas as you could get. So you sit in, in, that, in an investment committee and it's just really sort of a, it's really kind of a tearing apart of the idea, not the person. There's nothing personal about it, but just really sort of the back and forth on the idea and just getting to the truth. So this highly creative, highly entrepreneurial, truth-seeking sort of approach to things I thought was great. Now, the but at the end of it is that in the end, right, there are limits to the scalability of that. And if you have a firm of 11, 15, 20, 30 people of these sorts of this kind of characteristic, all mostly sort of sitting in one office, uh, you know, in, in San Francisco, I think it works very well. But when you then try to sort of preserve that and you've got lots of outposts in lots of places. I mean, this is an organization, Willie, that you're familiar with, right? In on all continents, you're in Latin America, you're in you're in Asia, you're in, in Europe, it does start to fray. I think that there there are limits to sort of the to how you can grow a freewheeling investment organization. And so I think that gets manifest in, you know, in in sort of in all kinds of stresses in the system. I mean, TPG has clearly sort of grown out of it a long time ago. And I think they're, you know, as far as I know, it's a you know, well-oiled machine. But I think the lesson that I took away from that was, yes, I think those sorts of, those that's a, that's a kind of person that you want to have in your firm, but really think hard about physical separation of your deal team. So we have an office in London, one in Lagos, one in Nairobi, and a, a small one in Paris. And, you know, in Lagos and in Nairobi, we have, um, you know, members of our portfolio operations team, and that works really well. We don't have any investment professionals in either Lagos or or Nairobi. And I'm not saying that will never change, but I think it's this sort of a version that, that I think I've developed to sort of having people scattered all over the place making, you know, in private equity, it's not, you know, we might think it's what's in the PowerPoint, but before the PowerPoint gets printed, there are, you know, the numerous you know, individual decisions and judgments that have been made along the way. And when you're, when you're blind to that and you're not in the hallway and chatting about the deal and getting the full contours of it, you know, there's risk there. So anyway, so look at a nutshell, I think the, the kinds of that creativity, I think is especially in, in our market, you need that creativity, that flexibility and that adaptability, but it imposes limits on, on the institution. So before we move from TPG to Helios, I need you to tell our listeners about how you got into the J Crew catalog. You swore that this would not come up. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I, I, did I? Did I get this? In fact, I don't recall. 
just, I think when you told me you were going to come on and do this, you said the one thing we're not going to talk about is how I got into the J. Crew catalog. But oh I want God. you to tell the story about doing the buyout of J. Crew and then getting yeah. being asked by J. Crew to be in their catalog. No, that it's was actually story. highly embarrassing. But um, so no, we so the reason so actually the history of, of TPG's involvement with. Um, with Jay Cruz that a, a, a dear friend of mine, uh, you know, Carrie Woods, who's a, a, a film producer, um, happened to be married to, to Emily Woods, who's the founder of J. Crew. I mean, her father funded, but she really is the, was the driving force, the driving spirit behind it. And when her father was sort of getting on and, you know, needed to sort of think about transition, you know, and she, and she was interested in getting out from underneath his, uh, his shadow, if you will, she was keen to sort of find a way to, you know, to buy the business. And so, you know, Carrie, you know, through Carrie, Emily and I sort of chatted a bit about it. And I said, well, you know, I know these guys in San Francisco who, who might be just your people. And so we went, um, met with Coulter and sort of had that dialogue. And that's how we ended up kind of, um, how Jake ended up. Uh, so that was actually the first deal that I worked on um, at, at, at CPG. And I was actually still at, at Business School. I was in my fourth year of grad school at the time. Uh, and so I was working on that deal part-time through my last year. And then it closed in my first full year of full-time work at, at CPG. But anyway, so during the course of all of that, Emily decided that she needed to have me in the catalog, which was uh, highly embarrassing. But I did get paid for it. I got paid $300 for it because I think really? by law you I have mean, to get I did I, get I paid. I would have thought there'd be some conflict about being on the ownership team of the company and being paid to be in the catalog. I love if that. I'm, I love if that. I'm going to be in the catalog, you're going to have to pay me. That's great. <laughs> so um, you move, you're already in London working for TPG and you decide to go form Helios. Talk for a moment, Topoy, about raising that first fund. You clearly yeah. had a fantastic track record, but anybody, I don't care whether you have the pedigree and the background that you have, anybody who's out raising a first fund, we've all heard it's, it's probably, you know, it's one of the most challenging things in the business world, unless for whatever reason, there just happens to be a moment in time where you can jump out and just go, let's do it. So talk about raising that first fund, particularly given that it was a first fund that was one of the first PE funds exclusively focused on Africa. Um, It's one thing to say, Hey, I'm going to go take everything I learned at TPG and have been doing at TPG in London, doing European buyouts and us buyouts and say, I'm going to raise Topoi Lawani fund one to do what I was doing at TPG on my own. But now all of a sudden you say, "Uh ah, we're going into Africa. And up until that point, I think I'm correct in saying nobody else had a dedicated buyout fund focused on Africa. So talk a little bit about raising that first fund. Yeah, you know, the thing about that was, I mean, there was probably some benefit of just naivete, I think probably helped, to be honest, because I think a fund like that, you know, first time fund, you know, in a pretty, you know, uh, niche, shall we say, market, I think is either impossible or it's easy. There's no such thing as it's in the middle, right? It's either just it won't happen or you might just stumble into some blind luck and, and it happened, happens, you know, fairly easily. I have to say that we were in the second category and, and for a simple reason that, as you say, fortunately, you know, based on um, just the prior experience that I'd had uh, at TPG, primarily in the, in the U.S., because I, you know, I'd only been at TPG in TPG London for a year. So primarily the network was in the U.S., and testimony to, frankly, to the U.S., which is a, a distinguishing feature of the U.S. versus any other country in the world. You know, people make bets on people and they take risks on people in a way that, you know, might not immediately be justified by whatever else. So, 
So what we did then was we approached, they were the only group of institutions that were actually in the business of investing in Africa, you know, in, and maybe in funds that might do things in Africa, et cetera, were development finance institutions. So, you know, like the IFC, um, OPIC at the time, which is now called DFC, CDC, which is the UK's uh, equivalent of, DS, of, of DFC, you know, CDC, the UK's development finance institutions. So you have the development finance institutions. That was sort of it. And so we approached that community and got, you know, we got fortunate with CDC, OPIC, as it was then, and the IFC, although the IFC actually came, you know, came later. And then, but really what happened was it was just the support of, you know, a number of high, ultra high net worth individuals that we had done a lot of work. So, you know, Bonderman was an investor, Coulter, Mark Lazary, who runs Avenue. And, and frankly, there sort of, you know, Soros, we'd done a, you know, a few things with, uh, with Soros and they were, you know, hugely supportive. Uh, and then oddly, and, and so that network, you know, then led to sort of, you know, a few um, meetings with certain hedge funds that we knew a little bit in New York. And of course, hedge funds are not really in the business of investing in private equity funds. But, you know, because of the novelty of the strategy and the an interest in perhaps getting some exposure to sub-Saharan Africa or to Africa broadly, and this being kind of the least bad way of doing it, you know, we were actually able to raise, you know, uh, a fair bit of money from hedge funds, weirdly, uh, you know, in that fund. So we really ended up in a place that was about a third development finance institutions, um, a third hedge funds, and then a third what I would call, you know, ultra high net worth individuals, family offices, all of whom were in the investment business. So that was the first one. Now, so again, we had nothing really to show for it. I mean, I made the argument at the time that, well, you know, we know Africa and we know investing. So of course we know investing in Africa, which is actually not necessarily, not necessarily the case, but I think we were able to do it on that basis. And then the challenges sort of come, come after that, right? When you then need to sort of demonstrate that you, you've actually done something reasonable with them with that first fund. It's funny when you say that you had a number of hedge funds that invested early in the in, in your fund. We had a bunch of hedge funds get into our IPO, um, and and they weren't in it very long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've learned I've learned lessons about that too. Exactly. Little little did I know that when they said, "Hey, we're going to take a piece of the book," that 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 was not exactly what I should be listening or hoping to hear. Yeah. Um, so one of your earliest investments, Topoi, was in a tower business, uh, HTN yeah. Tower in, yeah. in Nigeria in 2005. Uh, talk a little bit about that investment, which you which you yeah. moved out of in 2016. It was a fantastically successful investment. And that's now part of IHS Tower, yeah. a publicly traded company. But um, it led to other tower investments. But I, the, the reason I want to focus on that as our kind of launching point here is, is why private equity in Africa is has such opportunity here in the sense yeah. of buying into, I mean, in the, it, it, yes, you could have been an American tower back in the 1980s, just like you could have been in HTN Tower in Nigeria in 2005. And yeah. so, yes, but today there's so much capital behind the cellular industry yeah, that yeah. you really need to be able to write massive checks to be able to be in that billions and billions. Whereas here you are in 2004, relatively recently, and you yeah. get the opportunity to invest in the Nigeria Tower Company that becomes a huge success that then leads to another investment of a tower company across Africa. Talk about yeah. that for a moment. Yeah, look, I think the, so. Uh, one um, a point that I used to make, uh, you know, I remember saying this to an investor some years ago, was that 
you know, if, if private equity existed in the U.S. in the mid-19th century, you know, all of the, you know, the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies and the Rockefellers, et cetera, wouldn't have existed. Private equity firms would have built the railways, they would have, you know, built the banks, they would have done all of these sorts of things, right? Um, and, and to some extent, that's sort of where Africa is. You know, there's a lot of, inf- whether it's infrastructure in a roads and bridges sense, we'll hold that aside, but just economic infrastructure that needs to exist, that we know it needs to exist, it will exist at some point, and someone's got to build it. Now, in some cases, you know, so, so someone's got to build it, right, as opposed to sort of buying it when it's already hugely mature. And, and I think Towers was a really good example. We actually sort of stumbled into the Towers opportunity in a way because my partner and I were bidding on a, a mobile license, an actual operator license in Nigeria. And so we're going, you know, doing, you know, MTN had already you know, won their license, Econet had won theirs, there's a third one up for sale. And so in doing all the analysis and trying to get the financing together and so on and so forth, it dawned on us that the vast majority of the capex was basically steel and concrete to build these towers, right? And so, well, if this, if, if that's what we're doing and MTN has to do it and Econet has to do it and coverage in the country at the time was, you know, 10%, 15% geographic coverage and population coverage, you know, maybe even less then it's crying and, and in an environment where you know capitalist is scarce cost of capital is high and the actually operational headache of running a telecom tower because you know if it's if the power supply is unreliable your diesel generates all that sort of stuff it's crying out for a shared infrastructure solution so we lost the bid on the mobile license and immediately decided what we need to actually really build is a towers business and so we, you know, and that's how it got started. So my partner, we approached MTN to buy, MTN had at the time something like 800 towers in the country. Now, you know, they've got many thousands. And so we approached them about buying their towers. They sort of hemmed and hawed. And we said, well, forget buying existing towers. 95% of the towers that need to exist don't exist. So just focus on building the ones that don't exist. And so we, you know, um, negotiated a bill to actually you know, copy, pasted, found on the internet, sort of built to suit agreements, master lease agreements, site lease agreements from, you know, Crown Castle, American Tower, et cetera, you know, cobbled together the contracts that we would use, got some engineering drawings from, you know, that we paid for. And, you know, we're able to negotiate sort of the first built to suit agreement with um, with the mobile, one of the mobile operators in Nigeria. And then, you know, which is essentially a framework agreement. And then we, you know, we sort of built it from there. And, and that was... Sorry, go ahead, T. No, 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 go for it. Well, I was just going to say, is there anything that's fundamentally different about that business doing it in Africa versus doing it somewhere like in the yeah, States? Is there sure. something that, that the, the, the industry in the U.S. came up out of a landline business, therefore the location of the towers was distinct, and then when you're doing it kind of with a blank sheet of paper in Africa, it presents the opportunity to do things in a different way? I think the two differences. One is the one that you identified, which is, and this applies to a lot of the, you know, a lot of the um, the impact of innovation generally, right? Where landline penetration in Nigeria was about one percent, probably not more than one percent, possibly less than one percent before, you know, before the first telecom tower, li- before the first tele- mobile operator licenses were issued in around two thousand and three. So less than one percent. And so what that meant was effectively you, you, you could build a, a, a telephony system from scratch. So it means that there are no limitations. There's no place where there essentially there's no place where there's coverage or where they're already being served. And I've got to find pockets. It's just everywhere. Right. So that's one difference uh, with the United States, even when the United States was, you know, when the when the the the. Um, the towers business was just launching in, in the U.S. The other very significant difference is that in the U.S., 
it's an operationally simple business, right? It's, you know, you sort of build a tower, you plug it in, the power comes through and you focus on sort of selling, you know, space on the, on the tower to your tenants and collecting the rents in Africa. It's, it's, it, and so it's not particularly operationally complex. And so it's a financial deal, financial engineering. You can sort of, you know, you can think of it almost as, as, um, as real estate, which is what it is. In our, in our market, it's really an operating business because every single tower has maybe or maybe not a grid connection. It has a primary source of power, which is probably a diesel generator, has a backup for that diesel generator, which then means there's a whole industry around keeping the diesel supplied and, you know, and, and monitored because of diesel in a tank is a valuable commodity. And so security, so there are all sorts of ramifications of that, which mean that the barriers to entry are much, much higher. You know, you could, you and I could decide tomorrow that we wanted to start a towers business in Colorado. And I think we could probably build a few, maybe not that many, but we could build a few, make some money. You couldn't do that in, in, in Africa because the operational complexity is, is materially higher. And as a result, the trust that the operator has to have for the, the mobile operator has to have for the tower uh, co is that much higher. So credibility is at a real premium. And that's why you're not going to see a massive proliferation of tower companies in Africa. You'll see a few which exist now and they'll do well. Um, but, but, you won't, but the barriers to entry are very high. So after been, being so successful in the towers business, both in Nigeria as well as in your broader Helios Tower uh, company, which is in, I believe, seven countries, you decided to invest in Telcom Kenya, um, a fully integrated landline, cellular, uh, internet provider in Kenya. Why, if you will, go into the sort of, if you will, vertical integration on the telecom side in Kenya rather than staying in the cellular side as you had done both in Nigeria as well as across the continent? Yeah, look, candidly, Willie, to be honest, I think under normal circumstances, we probably wouldn't have. So I'll tell you a bit about the history of that of that investment. So we, so Telecom Kenya was acquired um, in majority, not 100%, by uh, France Telecom Orange from the, it was the, it used to be owned by the, the Kenyan government. So they bought a, I don't know, 60% odd interest for, you know, three, $400 million. They ended up putting in over the years an additional couple hundred million dollars. So, you know, they were probably invested about $700 million all in France Telecom was into Telecom Kenya. And Telecom Kenya was getting hammered by Safaricom, which is the dominant player in, uh, in, in, in Kenya, and to a lesser extent by Airtel, which is uh, the number two player in that market. And so France Telecom decided that they just, you know, no mass, they just needed to get out, right? And so they approached us about buying it. And we looked at it and said, look, same point you made, gosh, do I really want to be in the landline and the mobile and the this and all of that in a, in a world where I'm, you know, my relative market share is so low, etc. And so we actually said no. They Then about a year later, they approached us again. And again, we said no. And then we got a call from the Kenyan government because, you know, we'd been, we'd invested in Equity Bank was a great success in Kenya. We'd done a couple of things. And, you know, I think, you know, the government, they, the market basically come to embrace us, I guess, as, you know, force for good and a solver of thorny problems. Uh, and so the Kenyan government called and said, boy, it'd be great if you could figure something out because these guys are tr- threatening to just literally pull the plug and, you know, and, and go home. And so we thought, look, okay, well, let's just, tell them what it would take for us to to do the deal and we basically said look you know we'll take it for free and you will pay us you know 100 and or essentially pay slash guarantee you know ring fence something like 150 odd million dollars of um of costs and then you know and then we could see value with that right we could see value in 
you know, in some of the assets, some of the core assets like towers, well, telecom assets, but non-core like the towers. Um, and we felt that if we could achieve the primary thesis on the mobile side was to see if we could achieve consolidation with Airtel, the distant number two, we were distant number three. So if we could buy that company for zero, right, and consolidate our mobile operations with Airtels, then all of a sudden, you know, you get rid of a lot of redundant costs, your relative market share goes up, interconnect, which is a big source of revenue shift between one carrier and the other, you know, comes, starts to improve, and then you can make money on the mobile side, you can, you know, release cash on the tower side. And then there's some strategic assets like, you know, landing stations for undersea cables and so on and so forth. And so the thinking was you wouldn't quite disaggregate the business, but you'd essentially disaggregate the business, right? Now, you know, it hasn't transpired. A key part of that thesis hasn't transpired. We haven't been able to do the consolidation with uh, with Airtel for reasons that are the usual regulatory, all kinds of all kinds of things. But in the end, it'll be a good investment for us simply because of the terms of the of the deal that we did. Talk about those landing stations for under submarine cables, because I saw that your partner Orange is working with PCCW Global and Peace Cable to put it. I mean, when I was reading about it, Topway, I I'd like my I was trying to figure out how you do this, but they're laying twelve thousand kilometers of undersea cable from France to Kenya and up to Pakistan yeah. to basically connect Europe and and the Middle East via this cable. And then that same cable is kind of come out of Kenya and go all the way down to South Africa. Um, Do you all invest in those types of of ventures? Um, And, and, and I guess more importantly, what's it tell you about the future of telecommunications and the internet in the, in the continent? Hugely, hugely important, uh, Willie. So, so not only is that one that you've just described happening, there are two other, you know, projects, one that's being funded by Google, another being funded by Facebook that are coming down the other coast, sort of the West, the West Africa coast as well. And so in, in short order, you're going to have a, I don't know how many fold, but probably orders of magnitude increase. In, in capacity, you know, in, 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 in sort of undersea cable capacity, which basically means, you know, how do you connect, how do you connect, um, let me, let me give you, let me give you sort of some, some anecdote, right? The top 50 websites in Nigeria, the people in Nigeria access, the top 50, which all happen to be Nigerian websites, Nigerian publications, et cetera, et cetera. All of them are hosted in either Europe or in the U.S., so when I go to the website of, you know, the Daily News, right, which is, you know, or Business Day, which is a Nigerian newspaper, and I'm sitting in Lagos and I'm on their website, the data goes to Chicago, the request goes to Chicago, the data comes back, right? So you've got latency, you've got costs, you've got all of it. So Africa has the highest rates of, you know, highest data costs in the world and highest rates of latency and just lowest performance. And so what it means is that you can optimize as much as you want on the terrestrial side, but if the uplink to the rest of the, <laughs> the rest of the world is not there, then that's the rate determining step, right? So, so I think what these undersea cables will do, it will be to completely transform the rate at which sort of data consumption and data rates, you know, in um, you know, in in Africa. So, so some of the, so, and you think about what the implications of that are. So, you know, towers, right? You know, towers. You could, you know, if a mobile operator needs more space, 
in order to host sort of increasing data content, they'll probably rent more space on your tower. So that's probably good. Data centers, the force of, you know, the, the increasing consumption of data domestically, plus, of course, the desire that you see everywhere in the world for, you know, data sovereignty and people wanting sort of sensitive data to be hosted in their own country creates opportunities in data centers, terrestrial fiber, etc. All of that enabled by these giant sort of undersea cables that are that are emerging. So in theory, we might invest in the undersea cables. I mean, it's in the range of the sorts of things that we might do. We happen not to be looking at, you know, any of those three. But, but you know, all the effort that we're doing in the whole digital infrastructure space, data centers, fiber, towers, et cetera, we think will be, we'll have that as a tailwind. So let's switch from telecom to energy. Uh, and oil, you're you're an investor in Africa Oil, which is upstream oil exploration, and then you're also you own Vivo, which I believe is the largest downstream gas station operator in all of Africa. Talk about, if you will, upstream and why that's attractive to you, particularly given oil being at over 100 bucks a barrel, uh, and then the downstream. I'd always thought that the downstream business of owning service stations was a, a, a pretty thin margin business and that nobody really liked that end of it. Um, is there yeah. something that's unique about being in that part of the business in Africa that pres- provides the opportunity for ancillary revenues that just don't exist in more mature established markets yeah. like Western Europe and the U.S.? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll give you a quick answer on the upstream so I can spend a bit more time on the downstream because I think the story is a bit more interesting. So on the upstream side, you know, it is true that we've made historically a few investments on the on, in upstream oil and gas, but we haven't done one now in um, maybe eight years, maybe seven years, something like that. And, you know, look, the re- you might say, duh, right? The reasons, so the reasons that we... The reasons actually that we felt despite the dependence on, you know, on the commodity price that you can't predict, you can't really truly hedge in any real way. There's still reasons why we felt that we were, we were going to be able to sort of sustainably make money in that sector. And actually, overall, we haven't lost money. We made a bit of money in all our, you know, in totality in our oil and gas investments. But, you know, for reasons that have to do with just economics and the private equity kind of model, and then, of course, more, you know, in, in recent years, you know, by just the climate imperative and our view that, you know, all roads kind of lead to Rome in this regard, we're not making investments in the in the upstream sector anymore. Downstream is pretty interesting. Um, so Vivo, as you rightly point out, was a, a carve out we did, probably the most, in fact, the most complex deal I've ever worked on. And that's 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 saying a lot, was a carve out we did for, of um, all of Shell's petrol stations across Africa, excluding South Africa. So, you know, there were 16 countries, but there was no company there. It was just, you know, there were probably 24 companies that held these assets in them. And so we had to buy all 24 and create an actual independent standing you know, company uh, out of it. But what's interesting, and which we did, and we've since added, we bought some, you know, some sites or some uh, businesses from NGen as well. So now Vivo operates in 23 countries, 16 or 17 of those are Shell branded stations. Um, and then the balance are NGen branded stations. But what's interesting about the downstream business in Africa versus say the US is that in the US, by and large, petrol stations don't make money on petrol. They make money on, you know, on the food and sort of beer and cigarettes and chocolates and whatever else that people are buying from, you know, from the shop. And that's because, you know, the downstream business, the, 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 it's just been competed away. So they're not going to make money on, on commodity. In Africa, that's quite different. We make very, very good margins on the fuel, right? And so, and the reason that's the case is that the way in many markets, 
Africa is a net importer of refined petroleum products, right? And in many markets, you know, the because the marketers, the importers, so Shell, for example, our business, Vivo, have a fair bit of, of market power. The governments in many places have actually decided to regulate the business. When we first saw it and said, gosh, you know, regulated pump prices, that's a disaster. We're not going to get involved. But actually, when you think about it, what gets regulated is the margin. So in any in a in a in a in a, in a liter of, of gasoline of, of PMS, for example, you know, probably the probably eight cents is what the is, is the margin that we get. The rest is, you know, is the price of crude transport, refining, taxes, etc. So if the government really wants to adjust the price of the pump, they don't get a lot of mileage by shrinking the regulated margin. They could sort of say, look, our margin is no longer eight, it's now seven. And so that's, they don't get a lot of mileage. But on the other hand, if they shrink the margin to seven and we decide actually, you know what, we're just not going to, we're just not going to sell at that price, right? Then the country grinds to a halt. And so there's actually a pretty good detente, you know, and, 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 and sort of mutual understanding on both sides that leads to a fair result. So the way you make the, the way that the market operates in, in most African countries is you basically have a fixed margin that sort of, and that margin, the dollar quantum of that margin inflates over time. So we're going to make five dollars or five cents in this market. It'll inflate to five point zero something cents, and then five point zero something else cents. And so it's actually a quite protected margin. And then the challenge becomes because you're, it becomes making money on the ancillaries in a market where you know it's not a rich continent, right? People aren't buying that much. They don't spend that much money on, on sort of chocolates and beer and cigarettes, etc. And you know as they do uh, in the US. But it's a fantastic business, actually. Um, I think it's publicly disclosed that we've actually agreed a deal to sell or to sell that that business to our, our partner. Actually, we did it with VTOL, which is you know the world's largest. Um, an energy trader. They've been great partners, and then they've uh, they've they, it's been announced that there's a deal to for them to you know to buy it. So it's going to be taken private soon. So as I think about you not having done an upstream oil deal in quite some time, um, it makes me think about the fact that your funds and being focused on Africa and sustainability and all of the things that are attracting so much capital these days that. I mean, if you will, the Helios funds are sort of in position 1A as it relates to where um, sustainable capital, socially conscious capital would like to go. Is that limiting some of the investments you make down in Africa because there's sort of, you know, you can't be in dirty fuels, if you will, or anything else that sort of says, if we want to continue to raise this type of capital from the large institutions that we have a great track record with, we must be very conscious of what types of investments we're making? Super question. Look, I think the the short answer is no, actually, because we're quite fortunate in that, you know, most of the things that are likely to make money in and to make money sustainably and in a private equity kind of cadence, you know, are things that and, and to do them in Africa are things that in any case are going to be pretty highly impactful, positively impactful from a social and economic development standpoint. There's one exception to that, right, which is which is slightly uncomfortable, and, and it's a it's a very interesting one, and it's in this energy space. So we talk about upstream, we talk about downstream. Well, there's a bit in the middle, which you guys in the U.S. will refer to as midstream, and and what we so so Africa, you know, in the in the push, right, to to a zero carbon end game, which I think we're pretty aligned with. The there's a risk that Africa runs of being essentially 
um, I'd say disenfranchised because, you know, in, if you're in Germany, there's, there's not enough power to go around more or less. And so the debate is about swapping, you know, more polluting sources for less polluting sources. And, you know, that's a reasonable debate. And as you know, as, as certainly that's an easy one. In Africa, there's not nearly enough power to go around. Right. And you're not going to you're not going to power an aluminum smelter or a gas or a glass, you know, or, or glass factory with, you know, with wind power. Right. You're just not. And so you need much higher, much more high energy content and you know fuels to power that so we're quite interested and we have made investments in recent investments in the whole so we think we believe strongly in natural gas as a transition fuel so getting people off coal getting people off diesel getting people off heavy fuel oils which is sort of what people use in industrial settings now to replacing those with gas and then ultimately through the same pipes you could probably deliver whether it's hydrogen or biomethane or whatever it ends up being and so, so, but that's an area where we we do have certain investors who are you know longstanding partners of ours that have that are ambivalent about that. They say they sort of take a view that well, if it's gas, I'm not interested, right? And so we need to think a, a little bit about that because we think actually from a development standpoint, for Africa's sake, we think it's imperative. And so what we will not do is say, okay, well, we're just not going to do that because look, you know. The job that, that I'm in is to sort of help the continent develop. And I think if that's an important element of it, then we'll find a way to do it. But that's the place where I would say there's a, the shoe doesn't quite fit. Anything on nuclear? No, not yet. Although, although you know, as on my as part of my other stuff, I'm, you know, I, I do a lot of uh, work at MIT. And, and um, look, there's a lot of innovation that's going on in the in the sort of the small, you know, the, in the basically the small nuclear you know space. And I think, who knows, but it wouldn't be surprising to me if in the next 10 years, there are workable, you know, and sort of relatively sort of portable, if you will, uh, low cost sort of, you know, nuclear generation facilities that can be relevant for our market. But so far, nothing. I think the costs are just prohibitive. The scale is prohibitive and we don't have the economic density in these, you know, in these individual markets to be able to to warrant it. And, you know, look, and we also have, by the way, um, there are the value chain issues, right? There's a generation side, but transmission transmission links aren't great. Distribution grids aren't great. And so I think distributed power, at least for residential, is going to be the way. It's, it's good distributed solar, wind. It, you know, I think that rebuilding a whole grid and, and, and all of that, I think, is uh, tough. Same reason we don't have, have landlines. Talk for a moment, Topoy, about TPEI, uh, because I find it to be fascinating with a population across the continent that is so underbanked, yet overphoned if that is if that's yeah. it I've, I've never thought about calling it an overphoned population <laughs> yeah. but where you've got this just you know cell phones are ubiquitous they're everywhere yet you have a such a huge percentage of the economy that is not in the banking system and therefore yeah. something like tpay is the perfect payments platform to be able to allow people who have their cell phones to be able to actually transact with one another talk about that yeah look I, banks are in, i mean banks are in big 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 trouble right i'll give you just a um another anecdote so there was a study done um in Malawi and in Uganda, it just happened to be in those two countries. The point applies pretty much everywhere else, where they went through uh, a, a number of banks, right, uh, and sort of figured out, look, what is the cost of a basic savings account? So you just put your money in the bank account, and it's just there. You earn a bit of interest, and there's the sort of cost of maintaining it. And what they basically found was that more than 85 percent of the population, this is the Uganda example, 83 or 85, of the population of, of Uganda, the adult population, 
did not have enough in savings for it to be profitable for them to put their money into a basic savings account. Said differently, they would lose more money in cost than they're making interest. 83% of the population. So they're not, forget the banks as they are will never ever be relevant to, you know, to, to the vast majority of the, of the population. So banking penetration across the whole continent right now is probably 30 odd percent. Mobile penetration is you know, probably getting into the 90-ish. And more importantly, smartphone penetration, right? Smartphone penetration is now over 50%. In some countries, it's actually quite a bit higher than that. But that's growing extremely rapidly as the cost of smartphones is coming down. And so with that, it's pretty obvious, right? That it's it's really obvious that banks, I think traditional banks will have a very significant problem uh, because the ability to, to, to transact, whether it's, you know, T-Pay, whether it's, you know, um, InterSwitch, which is another one of our portfolio companies in Nigeria, Fowry, which is a, 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 one of our companies in, also in, in Egypt, you know, it just, people already have the banks in their hands and it's lower cost, it's fast, it's, it's easier to deal with and you don't need to be, you know, you know, when you walk into a bank, if you're not sort of well dressed and you're, you know, don't you, people look down on you. No one looks down on you when you're banking on your phone. So you've also invested in something called Bayport, which is yeah. basically a, a consumer credit uh, company. But I mean, it, the, the, what fascinates me about Bayport, Topoy, is that it's it, it's consumer credit, but at a, at a at a very low credit level. And so my 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 when I read about it, I sat there and said to myself, man, underwriting their customers, figuring out whether you're going to do a $20 credit card, you know, extension to somebody who is in the unbanked community, who is using their cell phone and accessing Bayport's credit. How, how, what's how does, how what does that the algorithm that allow right, you to say, right. I'm going to give money there? Yeah. So Bayport, so Bayport's a special case, right? Because the way Bayport provides its credit, so it's what we would call a payroll lender, not a payday lender, a payroll lender. And so what they do is they they basically go to, to uh, employers, so m- mostly government employers, in some cases, large multinationals, and they do a deal with the employer. So they might come to you, Walker Dunlop, and say, look, we're going to do a deal where you authorize us, right, to basically, you know, to basically provide loans to your team members, right, which we can then deduct payment for at source, Right, so that when the when the paycheck comes, Walker Dunlop will essentially take the twenty dollars or whatever is due that month, send it to our Bayport, and send the balance to the you know to the team member to the employee that you know that, that has the, the paycheck. And so, so credit losses in that model are extremely low. I mean, really low. It's like one or two percent because it only happens when people lose their jobs. I mean, there's you know some you know or there's some fraud or something like that, but it's extremely low. Now. Bayport has its other challenges because as do all non-bank financial institutions, when you're non-bank, non-bank lenders, I should say, if you're a non-bank lender, you've got to finance yourself somehow. And I think our experience in Bayport has been that the underdevelopment of the capital markets, the debt capital markets in Africa, especially the local currency debt capital markets in Africa, has actually been an inhibitor on the growth and profitability of that business. So that's a separate sort of lesson learned that, you know, that, that, that is relevant to Bayport, but from a model standpoint, it's a fantastic model. But I think your point is still relevant though, because there are a number of credit providers that do it exactly as you described by algorithm, by, you know, they sort of assess phone pattern usage, you know, phone usage patterns, et cetera, et cetera. And look, we've looked at a few of those and I have to say that, you know, 
the jury's still out, you know, the jury's still out because in many cases, you know, it's sort of what in the olden days people used to call evergreening, right? How do I know that that last loan was paid back or just another one borrowed, right? And so you, you, you see these companies showing you know, rapid rates of, um, you know, of asset growth, but I'm not so sure what the credit quality is. And I'm not sure when we'll really, when we'll really know whether these algorithms actually work. So when I was doing research on Helios, you all were named the uh, firm of the year for Africa by Private Equity International. And I said, wow, that's that's really fantastic that they won that award in 2021. Um, I then realized that you won it in 2020, 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016. <laughs> um, and it's it's really quite something what you have done. When you think about the amount of capital you've raised, Topoy, the the investments, because you're doing big you know, infrastructure investments, the checks that you're writing are probably typically larger than sort of emerging firms would have been way back when, when you were first yeah. starting Helios. And now your last fund, I think, was a billion two, and you're about to raise fund four right now. Yeah. Um, is there anything just that's very different as it relates to either the size of the checks that you need to write because you're doing more infrastructure plays than operating company plays? And then also the 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 the, the realization of I noticed that a number of the companies you've taken public rather than doing industry trade sales, whereas in the U.S. public private equity world, probably then maybe I'm wrong on this, but my sense is yes, some do public exits, but often it's the company is sold off to some big you know operator in that space who's doing a strategic purchase from the private equity firm. Is is that a fair kind of are the checks bigger to get into it and then also is the realization through the capital markets rather than through operating companies buying it just because of the nature of the market and so few competitors yeah look I'll, let me start with the second one i think you know there are many things that are that, that are great and i think better about investing in, in africa i'd say most things the one thing that is not yet but is getting there is is the last bit it is the so if you have a great company that is doing something in an industry that matters in a part of the continent that matters at scale and is well run and well governed, you you know ultimately there's an exit for it. So that's not the problem. I think the challenge is that you know we've pioneered so many things. You know we've sort of take you know we've sort of been first in discovering many things, and I think amongst those discoveries are simple things like you know so the reason you might take a company public might be because at some point it, it just so you have a company that has maybe it's got 20 million of EBITDA when you buy it right and then you do great and it's sort of 80 million of EBITDA when you're ready to sell it well now all of a sudden it's a you know half a billion 700 million dollar business and then you've got a real question to ask well not only are there because you know there are no other private equity firms specialists you know, who might be buyers, although increasingly firms like TPG, you know, Blackstone, et cetera, you know, depending on the kind of business, you know, might be interested, but by and large, not, not really. And what you might find if you're not careful is that even for strategics, you know, maybe they don't want to write a $700 million check into Kenya or Egypt or wherever it may be. So I think that there's sort of, there is such a thing as sizing an investment for a market. Right now, if you have a if you have a multinational uh, business like Vivo, which is in many countries, then you know, you know, you know, someone might buy that because okay, look, I'm getting the entire you know the the entire kind of geographic spread. But look, I think, but I do think that you know, I do think there is something to what you said. The combination of check size, 
country coverage, et cetera, is something one needs to optimize. I think we're, I, I feel pretty strongly that we're, we're getting there. But I think historically, you've sort of seen some companies we've invested in that we've taken public that actually had they been a bit smaller or, you know, we would have just sold. Yeah. Um, so my, uh, my final question for you, and you've been so generous with your time and I've loved this conversation. Um, I have sat in your seats at Chelsea, which are incredible seats. Um, my question is what happens to Chelsea and are we going to find that Topoi Lawani is the next owner of Chelsea after Roman Abramovich uh, ends up selling it? Yeah, about? yeah. My, my LPs might call that strategy drift, but you know, hey, <laughs> if, if all that means is that they won't invest with me again, I'll take the risk. <laughs> yeah. Who ends up winning no, it? Who ends up getting uh, it? I think I have a decent sense. I think I have a decent sense. I think so. But look, I think it's going it, Well, I tell you what it won't be. I don't think it'll be any of the sort of the funds, you know, the fund-backed uh, entities. I think the government and the fans won't really have it. I mean, the government will channel the fans because they're politicians. Um, and so I don't think it will be that, um, you know, but I do think it'll be, you know, it'll be one of, it'll be an American buyer. I think almost certainly it will be an American buyer. Uh, and I think because the American buyers understand the business of sports, I think better than, than most. And they in particular understand the business of stadium redevelopment, which Stamford Bridge, you know, needs and has a great opportunity for. I mean, you know, Stamford Bridge seats 42,000 people, Old Trafford where, where Man United plays, I think 74, Anfield. Is, you know, so there's a huge upside, you know, to that. And look, when you're the biggest team in the biggest city in the, you know, in the biggest sports in the world, I mean, you know, I think the Chelsea brand is a pretty strong one, but we'll keep winning on the pitch. We won five in a row since, uh, since all this drama began, all on the road, by the way. So it's business as usual. It's fantastic. I can't wait to come back and go to another game with you. No, you're always um, welcome. You and I, you and I never, we did not get to talk about NBA and your partnership with yeah. the NBA. That's going to be for another day. Um, but Topoy, A, congratulations on all you've done. B, thanks so much for spending the time with me today. And most importantly, thanks for the friendship. And uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. And we have not done a, a shout out to uh, our buddies, uh, Little Johnny uh, and yep. friends, but to Little Johnny and friends, uh, we look yeah, forward to Yeah, all up and to the right, exactly. 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 You got it. Yeah. All right, guys. Um, All thanks, right. Topoy. Great to see you, buddy. Take it easy. Thanks Take very much Bye -bye. for having me.